Okay, <laughs> too TMP. Uh, tonight's talk is about um, two different ways that we can <coughs> interpret the three characteristics of existence, soft ways and hard ways. Both are true. I'd like to begin with a quotation from the <coughs> third Chinese Zen patriarch. Um, it's called Verses on the Faith Mind. The great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their opinions. I was going to begin with a different story, but as I was <coughs> driving here, I ran into a slight obstacle on the road. And the, the talk is about... Um, this, this first part of this series is about Anicca and different ways that Anicca plays out for us. Uh, so I was driving up here and <clears throat> there was a big tow truck in the middle of the road, down on the dirt road. So I, I kind of had it timed perfectly to how much time I had to get here. <laughs> and then I was, it was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and usually... You know, if I have to give a Dhamma talk, I feel like there's some preference in my mind. Yeah, there's an opinion that it should go a certain way. And it was just so interesting, that initial moment, like, no, this can't be happening. But it was happening. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we, we worked it out, the tow truck driver and I. Um, he agreed that the Dhamma talk was more important than towing the, the car immediately. <laughs> so he actually unhitched it and got out of the way, so we can thank him for that. So how I'm connecting this quotation about ceasing to cherish our opinions so that we can live a more peaceful life in the flow with things as they are is with this um, story that happened to me recently. Honolulu has been getting a lot of rain, a much more unexpected amount of rain than usual. And I went to pick up Stephen Smith at the airport recently, and his plane was late, so um, I left the house about midnight. And it's usually about a 30-minute drive to the airport if there's no traffic. Uh, so I was driving along, and the rain was just sort of normal when I took off from my house. And then <clears throat> it started to f- like do this kind of flash flood <laughs> rain. And I was driving along the highway, kind of slowing down, and then I started to see these signs, you know, these kind of flashing neon signs, uh, road to airport closed. So the exit from the airport was closed. And I don't know this area of Honolulu at all. You know, so that I, I had to exit um, earlier than I would normally to get to the airport. And what's interesting is that there was a series of these signs saying <coughs> Air, airport exit closed. And the first one, I didn't believe. You know, it's just like, no, that can't be happening because I didn't want it to be that way because I don't know any area around that, that part. And I knew it would be Duca. So then the second sign went, uh, airport exit closed, and I was like, oh, no, can't be closed. There must be a mistake. And by the third one, I just, oh, okay, it's closed. So, you know, I, I was running late, the rain was coming down, and I, I just had that anticipation of this isn't good. It's just like I can hardly see. 
So I pulled off, and I'm going through these <coughs> roads that I don't I know where I was, and I got really lost. So I was about to pull out my cell phone and stop to see you know, if I could call somebody at midnight and get directions. But just as I was about to do that, I saw this red light where I didn't expect a red light to be. And I was going maybe 30 miles an hour or something. <clears throat> and then I noticed there were these really deep puddles, just, just extremely deep puddles. <laughs> it was pouring. I can hardly see red. And so I stepped on the brake. And the brake, um, the brakes locked. So I have, I have learned to drive in snow because I was born around here. And I, I consider myself a good driver in snow. But I've never what they call hydroplane. And I wouldn't have ever used the word hydroplane, but I had an experience of hydroplaning. And what happens is that your wheels lose touch with the ground. Um, so in a, in a snowstorm, you lose a lot of control, but you don't lose co- total control. But it was like the brakes locked, and I absolutely had no control. And I'm at, a, I'm at an intersection. <laughs> and my, my car just flew through the intersection, twirled three times, and just like bammed into the side of the, the road. Like it was just, that's the fast version. But there's a much um, slower version. So you know when things kind of get very... Um, intense, how they happen very quickly, but they actually seem like they slow down. So the place I wanted to talk about that was the most interesting to me in this experience was that there was a certain point where, you know, the brakes locked. I'd never had this experience before where there was no, I I checked the wheel. It was just like, and it was just like, wow, (laughs) I have no control. And the next moment I had this incredibly strong opinion about the situation. But I could see that it was a mere opinion. And most of the time, we just don't get that. But in that moment, it was so clear to me that my opinion was that I was hoping that no other cars were coming through the intersection. My opinion was that that would be like horrible. But I also could see how it was an opinion because I had absolutely no control. And that was the point where it, it, like there was this unconditional acceptance of having no control. It was a pure just sliding through that intersection. And it felt beautiful. But I also was aware that it could have just immediately switched to totally deadly and hurting other people. You know, just like horrendous. So there was this just incredible mix in myself of sort of like peace and then joy and then, you know, just horror at how um, out of control things really were. So then I twirled, 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 hit the side of the road, kind of just took a few deep breaths and then drove into the 7-Eleven there to get directions. And I rolled down the window and my body shook for half an hour. And I rolled down the, the window, and these two men had, been, had seen it. They were standing outside under this roof. Um, they were outside, but not in the rain. And they just looked at me, and they said, Wow! <laughs> they, they said, That was incredible! You're so lucky! I said, I think I have really good karma. <laughs> 
you know, but they didn't quite get involved in that conversation. <clears throat> One of the insights I had as I was driving to the airport um, from that place was that that place of, of seeing that there was no way out other than by surrender was something that happened at my birth. And, and so I was born dead. And there's, there's, there's a deep uh, kind of um, sense of being at home when that experience happens. You know, when it, it, there's just that sense of, oh, okay. It's okay. Let go. Let go. Um, and it, as I was driving, I was experiencing that mind state of unconditional acceptance uh, as really wonderful and peaceful and as a kind of homeland, something very familiar that I've, I've cultivated in this meditation practice. And as I was becoming aware, this was the first several moments that I, was, I became aware that I, had, I liked it. And there was just this almost invisible but just excruciating moment of just grabbing onto it and wanting it to last. So it was just like, it, in some ways, on one level it was hardly noticeable. But because it was such a pure place and because it was lasting for so long, it just right in my heart and it was like, I don't want this to go away. And that's how quickly we can go from that place of peace and surrender to being in a lot of pain. That that's the moment of the ego asserting itself, that moment of, oh, I want this to last, is what the Buddha called suffering. So this movement to attempt to control or manipulate what we can't control is suffering. And we see in practice, you know, as we go through the kind of um, repetition of practice, we start to gradually appreciate that the strategy of control doesn't really work that well for us. You know, but so much of it comes from facing anicca or change. I think most of you have heard a lot about the three characteristics of existence. Um, One of the ways to sort of do a light light brush stroke with it at the beginning of the talk is to, to really kind of equate it with mindfulness. So, so that when we bring our attention to what's happening, the idea is that um, whatever is happening is showing itself to our consciousness. Yeah, at the moment of occurring, the awareness comes to what's happening. So, so it's like the three characteristics make themselves known to us through this ability to pay attention to the truth of what is, moment by moment. And it's out of that 
repetition, basically, of being aware moment to moment, that we start to be um, transformed. You know, that the insight transforms us. We, we have this deepening of our understanding of the three characteristics of existence. Again, by sustaining some semblance of mindfulness over time. The Buddha taught that anicca, <coughs> um, that the characteristic of anicca is that it doesn't endure. And he said that not being in existence at first, it comes into being and ceases to exist, disappears and dissolves away. And a lot of the Satipatthana Vipassana practice is about this. It's all about understanding that anything conditioned, you know, that it's not being in existence at first, it comes into being, ceases to exist, disappears, dissolves away. And he also uh, likened it to a streak of lightning in the sky. It doesn't last long, it disappears instantly. So seeing things just as they are, whether it's like with body or feelings, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, or with mind or contents of consciousness, uh, dhammas, um, as we start to kind of deepen, again, it's a, it's a deepening of our understanding of this characteristics of impermanence, then it's out of this understanding of impermanence that we realize, again, that we have insight that because things aren't lasting even a second, um, <clears throat> that because things are dissolving or disappearing so quickly, that we realize that experience isn't dependable. You know, and this is, this is really important, you know, that, that what the Buddha was teaching is that there's, there's a peace um, that isn't that isn't connected to what's happening in our experience. And this can only come, this deepening peace can only come from, from the letting go of experience yielding something permanent and lasting to us can only come from realizing that it isn't dependable. And then that <clears throat> phenomenon of incessant um, arising and vanishing uh, it's out of that realization that we see that, that it's substanceless. And then that sense that, you know, this is mine, this is I, this is you, this is they, <laughs> you know, whatever, you know, our understanding of anatta comes out of that realization um, that there's not any trace of inherent separate existence in anything that we were mindful of. And this, all of this depth of understanding, um, again, can bring us to a soft interpretation of the truth or a hard interpretation of the truth. So what do I mean by that? Because it's kind of fun. Um, so inescapable change being the characteristic of Anicca, a soft interpretation um, would mean that we're interpreting change to be something that we maybe can anticipate. And um, therefore, we can become comfortable 
with this sense of change because we've learned to sort of accept it as a kind of rhythm. So growing up here in New England, for example, you know, you kind of get used to the four seasons. And there can be a way that we relate to the change um, as, a, as, a, as a kind of beauty. And even if there's a, a kind of sadness in the way that, you know, fall will change to winter or summer will change to fall, there's still a way that we interpret the change as something comforting and beautiful. Maybe we see a cherry blossom, you know, in, in, in its most beautiful form, or we see a sunset. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying that this is wrong or bad. It's like there's a way that we make soft interpretations about change that in their way are comforting. And um, another way to put that is that we sort of hope that change will be predictably benign. <laughs> you know, that, that, that there won't be a harsh, harshness to the change. Another way to put this would be um, that we, we like to think of change as rhythm, a kind of rhythm, not a kind of rupture. So as humans, we tend to lean into the sense of change as being soft. We tend to not like the more um, difficult aspects of change. So the hard, the, the soft interpretation of change, ultimately there'll be a melancholy or sadness, but it's consoled by beauty. An example that I can give of this just, just the other day is when I arrived here, um, I have a place in the woods nearby here, a stream that I've been going to with a kind of rhythm since 19... Oh, uh-oh. I went there first in 1971. Uh, I don't even want to add that up. But it's a lot of years that I've been frequenting this particular spot in the woods. And, and I, those of you who know me, nature has been a real important place for me to um, draw insight about change and have it be a support in the soft way. That it, that it, so, so anyway, I got here and the snow was still quite deep and I wanted to go to this place, but it's a walk into the woods and there's a long hill that de- goes really steeply down. And I was falling through like... <laughs> it took me so long to get down this hill. And I came from Honolulu here. So it was a, it's a shock, you know. I just kind of look around and compared to green warm, tropical Hawaii, it's kind of being airlifted into death. You know, it's like, it's dead. Everything's dead. It's like intense, that, that shift. Um, <laughs> you know, but I couldn't adjust. I grew up here, and I'm kind of going down this hill. I love it. Um, and I got to the stream, and it was completely covered with ice, like deep ice and deep snow. And I walked along it, and there were just a few places that there were openings, and you could see um, icicles. And the sun came out, and the, the icicles were there, and it was so beautiful. And I sort of hoped, oh, I hope I can come back and see this. I went to see my family, 
on, on Cape Cod, and it was maybe four or five days. Uh, and when I came back, I decided to, to go there again uh, because I love to see this, and it's rare for me to get to see it like that. And again, I went clunk clunking down <laughs> the hill, got there, gone. I mean, the whole, the whole stream was opened up. It's like all the ice it was gone. It had rained for a few days. And, you know, as I got halfway down the hill, you could just hear this water roaring. Like, it was just like, it's the best part of spring. It's just like, whoa, change, you know. And there's a level to that that I find really inspiring and beautiful. Now, a hard interpretation of change. Um, is when things are unsteady and unpredictable. There isn't a sense of rhythm in it, and usually we don't get inspired with a kind of beauty. So, for example, um, a war or an earthquake or a tsunami, um, you know, and in, you know, a, a sickness, you know, death, you know, all of that. Um, we make a t- we tend to have a more hard interpretation of it. It isn't so soothing, and it isn't comfortable. And just just to bring in the the dukkha aspect of that a bit, it's like how we can relate that to dukkhas is when we have that sense of we never know what's going to happen. Again, we can kind of soothe ourselves with a soft interpretation of change. And then a dukkha can tend to feel more bearable. And even the vulnerability that we feel when we feel dukkha is, tends to be more bearable. But when we get into the more hard interpretation of anicca, the um, the dukkha tends to be more unbearable. So you can see that relationship between soft and hard in the three characteristics. And even if, you, if we jump into anatta, which we won't probably have time for tonight, but it's like if you think of sort of the soft or the hard aspects of, of anatta, um, in some ways when, when we really understand the emptiness of things, you know, when it's clear, when we're not trying to force it, it is like the kind of thorn of, or the sting of dukkha is pulled out. Um, and, you know, there's that, there's that wonderful quality of emptiness. And then there's that um, annihilating, scary part of emptiness, which can lead us toward, you know, like a, a withdrawal from experience and indifference rather than being connected. You know, so the, these are really interesting aspects, I think, to explore in terms of the three characteristics of existence. I think most of us want to uh, have that sense of spontaneous aliveness or that sense of, of relaxed stillness, you know, that, that ease of well-being. Um, and we want it, but we often forget to ask ourselves, well, why is it really so difficult? 
you know, if you look around the planet, there aren't that many fully enlightened beings. You know, it's not as, you know, there's a level where we can grasp sometimes that happiness or peace is quite simple. Um, but there has to be some kind of willingness to, to be as insecure as what the three characteristics of existence lead us to. You know, so, so it's, it's helpful sometimes, I think, to, to remember that we actually get afraid. And that a lot, the lot of, so much of the manipulation and the control is really because we can't just go, oh, you know, I'm afraid. This is, this is intense, <laughs> what, what we've taken birth into. I suppose one of my most powerful teachings on this was um, my sister had children when she was quite young, 15, and her third child was born when I was 17. I started raising them when I was about 11. And um, by the third child, I think I had, I was 17, so I was a little more aware of, of stages and what was going on. Um, and also, I think my nephew, Tony, was a little more transparent in his expressions of just what he was going through. Uh, so, of course, we don't always remember when we were learning um, how to go from formlessness to knowing what things are and kind of having that ego that we're sure we know what things are and we have that security that we kind of have everything nailed down. <laughs> um, but I had this great privilege of being very close to Tony when he was going from that place of um, realizing that and he had to start to know what things were to, to function and cope as a human. You know, so he, and it was so humiliating and excruciating for him to admit that he didn't know what things were. It was just so unbearable for him. And it was, you know, he, he couldn't hide it. He couldn't act like it was okay. But he tried, you know. And it was, it was so moving and poignant to watch him learning how to be in the world of form. And so he would want to know what something was, but he didn't want to admit that he didn't know it. And I don't know if you can relate to this because sometimes we just get so hardened and we get so adult that we forget what it was like to be that vulnerable. But being mindful is being like that. Being mindful is being able to really let go of what we know and let go of what we know and let go of what we know and let go. And it's very insecure. You know, so he just was, I think it's also because he really trusted me, but he'd come up to me and say he wanted to know what this was, this thing, this green thing. I could just see that it got him, he'd have to kind of just gear up <laughs> to have the courage to, to face that he didn't know what it was. And then he'd come up to me and he'd have this kind of macho bravado and he'd say, what's that? And I'd say, oh, that's a cup, Tony. And he'd go, I know. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was just like, I would have to, I just, like inside I would just roll my eyes like, it's not that bad that you don't know, you know, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't like get over it. Mm. Every single word he learned was that hard. You know, what's that? That's a tree, Tony. I know. You know, I mean, it was just like the whole vocabulary came that way. Um, and in some ways, that's how we lose it. It didn't come easy for us. And it, mindfulness is that ability to be willing to go back there and say, I don't know what this is experientially. I don't mean analytically. It doesn't mean we become these kind of moron dullards that can't, you know, figure anything out. It's not like that at all. It's more just that we're willing to have the thought, oh, that's a cup, or that's a Michelle, or this is a Dharma talk, or that's a light, or whatever. It's like, oh, this is spring, or oh, I'm bored. And have that courage to say to yourself, I'm not going to fall for this word. I'm going to really be willing to explore this experientially. You know, and, it, and I, I'm serious with this, and it might be easy to do with a green bean, you know, at lunch, you know, or it might be like, okay, when you go up to, you know, put in some brown rice. You know, that's a soft interpretation, again, of how things are. But say it's fear, then it's something else to be able to say, oh, I don't know what fear is. Can I really just have that sense of dropping into this without really knowing what's going to happen? So our, our movement toward control is so much about our unwillingness to face that insecurity. One of the places that I think (laughs) is happening so much of the time, but it's so difficult for us to admit it, is resistance. You know, or being confused, or, or maybe um, a bit lost. Um, so I just wanted to touch on this, and again, I think most of us know this, but it, it can be helpful to be reminded of it. Um, usually the experience of resistance comes through a feeling of feeling disconnected. Uh, so we might feel like we were doing three minutes of the walking, or we might have been eating for a little while, or we might, we might be sitting. But there's just a sense that, in one way, it might feel like we're not really in focus. It's like if you have those old cameras that used to, you know, those old 35-millimeter cameras. The, the one hard thing about digital is that this, is, this example is going to become an antique. <laughs> but um, I think most of us in the room remember these old 35-millimeter cameras that, you know, they had that line in the circle, and, you know, you had to kind of turn the lens until it kind of came totally in focus. Well, in some ways, that's one aspect of mindfulness. 
where you're not in the past, you're not in the future, and you're sort of willing to drop in a little bit. Um, that's one level. Of course, then there's a level where you drop in a little bit deeper and it gets out of focus again because things are moving so quickly. Um, But that's not sort of where I was going just then. Let's go back to sort of that sort of general sense of like moment to moment, feeling like you're there, 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 and then you don't feel like you're there, but you were really thinking you were there. And I don't mean sinking mind or sleep. It's this feeling of like, missing that we disconnected. And usually it's because there's been some resistance to what's happening. And often, because we're not, you know, it's only because we're not so mindful in those moments, we try to get back to whatever it was that we resisted. But in actual fact, that's in the past. And it doesn't, it's not necessary to do that. In fact, we're not in touch with the natural flow of things at that point. But it's hard for us to admit that we're in resistance. And so much of that is where we are. You know, the the degree to which we're not in the present moment is often where the resistance is. Um, So again, it takes that humility to be able to come into focus there and to say, well, what is that word? And what does it feel like, free from any past ideas, disconnected, lost, confused? It's, it's, and, and I would offer um, that it, it can become very interesting and, in fact, wonderful to explore these spaces when we let go of this idea that we're valuing or we have this opinion that times when there's no resistance is better than when it, there's resistance. So, so that's, that's the aim of this talk in terms of anicca, is to remember that there is this constant change. And if we value one experience over the other, no matter what it is, clarity versus vagueness or confusion, then we will suffer. And it, it, it all comes because we have this opinion or idea about the moment. I had this experience in Burma this year, um, and this is the fifth year I've been in Burma, and I have this beautiful kuti right um, overlooking the Irrawaddy River. And it's, it's just... <laughs> Sagain is known as the spiritual heart of Burma. And there's just all these beautiful pagodas and this river's running by and the sun rises there every morning because it's the dry season. So I get, I get to see this beautiful sunrise every morning. So just kind of imagine five times in a row I've been there and this was, the retreat was three quarters of the way through and I was sitting watching the sunrise and this thought came, you know, I was having a great time watching the sunrise. This thought came, Yesterday's sunset was better. I mean, you know, and you know, we fall for those things. I mean, I was very quiet that day, but it was just like, I, you know, I believed it for a second. It was like, and I kind of went, oh, yeah, yesterday's sunset was better. <laughs> yeah, it's a little hazy over there. It's not good enough, you know. It was beautiful. But, I mean, just, just to see how one little 
teeny tiny thought can arise and we can be unhappy. So going with the natural flow of things in that, in that sense, for me, was to be able to see that thought and kind of laugh and go, oh yeah, comparing. It's okay, I don't have to fall for it because I could see. But again, there's that sense that the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their opinions. It doesn't mean that that thought won't come up. The idea of practice is not to prevent a thought like that from coming up. It's to just see that it's just a thought. We don't have to believe them. So if resistance or confusion or or feeling lost is happening, sometimes um, it can be helpful to, to just look sometimes and see, are we valuing pain? Do we value pain as much as as pleasure? Do we value pain as much as neutrality? And then it can be helpful. You know, there's, there's ways in which sometimes we're rolling along in the practice and we don't always want to just kind of be simple again and just realize that it's helpful at those times to anchor and maybe anchor a lot with something neutral. Another way that I wanted to explain this um, is when I went to visit my family, <clears throat> most of my family had this, this thing that most people call it this year. It's, it's a virus, but I hear the way people describe it as, do you have it? It's like it's a special virus this year. <laughs> it seems to kind of lodge itself in your chest, and you know, it just seems like it, it's nastier than last year's virus, whatever that was. But anyway, my family, most of them had it, but they didn't tell me. I think they didn't tell me because they knew I wouldn't come down and visit them. So I came, came down there, and I was kind of oh, run down, came from Hawaii, came, right, ran right down there. And one of the two-year-olds was, you know, putting her hands in my mouth and, you know, in my eyes. And it's kind of inevitable that I caught it. Uh, But I didn't want to. And when I, you know, when you feel yourself coming down with something and it's like, no, I I hate getting sick. I don't want to get sick. (laughs) Um, Now, most of us have an idea about practice that right practice would be Right then, making ourselves be okay with being, getting sick. But that isn't it. It's like right practice is being able to see the thought, oh, I hate being sick, and being okay with that resistance. That's going with the flow of being in the present moment. And do you see how different that is? But it can seem right. That's what I mean by we'll try to get back and force ourselves to accept something that actually isn't even happening in the present moment. You know, so, so look for that. We do it endlessly. Um, and it, it can become interesting because at that moment when I was like, oh, I hate being sick, it's like, oh, hating being sick. 
Great. Opening to that. So we're not trying to get rid of the reaction to pleasant or unpleasant. We're trying to go with that natural flow of things and just surrender into it and allow it, connect with it. You're not trying to change it. You connect with it, but also learn not to take it personally. You don't identify with it. And that's really going with the flow of change. And we all know, (laughs) you know, that great saying, it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to what's happening that's important. And I have found that valuing pain, valuing pleasure, valuing neutrality is important. But the most important is valuing the fleetingness of the change within those pleasant, unpleasant and neutral feelings. So I found that the more I value the fleetingness of the change, the more I'm able to drop into the present moment, the truth of the present moment. There's a kind of um, sweet release that happens when we do that. And that sweet release isn't necessarily, again, based on what's happening in the experience. It's based on that place of, of letting go of control and going with that flow. So the point, for example, when I finally said, okay, sick. <laughs> you know, and sick is just a word, yeah? But I find it so grounding. You know, everything, everything has to, you know, everything extra has to drop away. And I have a sense of just getting so deeply in my body and there, it can be quite okay if there's that utter, total acceptance. When the Buddha talked about um, peace or freedom, that's what he meant. It's that unconditional acceptance. It's not based on any conditions. And of course, the, the difficult part of practice is that that sweet, that sweet place of release is also fleeting. So when I mentioned that place in the, um, the hydroplane where I felt that freedom of, of really letting go and then watching myself wanting to hold on to it, that place where we really hold on to that place of freedom and peace is because it's, it feels so good and we're practicing for it, you know, so it feels like, you know, we can make a really good case for holding on to that. (laughs) And it it is actually the most difficult thing to be okay with, is the fleetingness of equanimity. So I went outside with my um, great-niece, who's six now, and my great-nephew, who's nine. 
and uh, my great niece Brenna lost her favorite ball. And, you know, she's very. Her parents think she's extremely melodramatic and a drama queen, but, you know, she's just really out there, you know, she just kind of puts out her emotions. Um, and again, there's this extreme, tra- <laughs> we could call it extreme transparency that Brenna has, but I enjoy it because, you know, there's just nothing hidden. <laughs> you know? I'm always aware of what I'm, I'm relating to with Brenna. So she's having this fit, like this total fit that she couldn't find her favorite ball and she's in this deep tragedy. <laughs> her mind state was just like total tragedy, can't find her ball, and her brother's trying to cheer her up and say, you know, we'll get another ball, nothing. She was inconsolable. Um, And I don't know if you can relate to ever, in practice, are you ever inconsolable? We tend to hide it, but there are places in the day, or maybe it's two days from now, where we get inconsolable, inconsolable, but hers was right out there, so... I had this idea, Brenna, why don't we look for your ball? But she lost it a long time ago, like last fall. (laughs) So I kind of felt like we were out for a kind of Don Quixote kind of, you know, adventure. But I thought, you know, why not? You know, and she just, she was in one of those really difficult moods. She just complained and, you know, and then, then it turned into... We can't find the ball. We'll never find the ball. We went from inconsolability to total despair. We're going down this hill, and her brother's just like about to have a lose it. You know, he was being patient. He was being patient, but he was about to lose it. And I could feel myself. It's just it's so hard when you lose control of children. You know, and they were just kind of splintering off into these horrible moods. And then we got to this cattail swamp, <clears throat> and it, down in the Cape, it's melted a lot more. And it's it's it was wet. <laughs> and then there's also the pressure of her mother, who I raised her, but she's, um, we're opposites, and she likes things neat and unmessy and unmuddy, and she doesn't like them to come back looking like they were outside from my point of view. But I also have to keep in mind that I have to keep the kids more in control than I normally would. And so I'm, th- I'm weighing, should we go into this one, <laughs> which I wanted to do, and um, I knew the mother would be upset, so I just thought, okay, what the hell, we'll go into the swamp and I'll take the blame. So we went into the swamp and it was, <laughs> it completely changed their minds because they just looked at me like, you're really letting us go in here? And it was just like <laughs> thorns and they were getting all full of seeds and it was mucky and, you know, we couldn't find the ball. Um, <laughs> they were kind of looking at me like, what are we doing? We really went into unknown territory. And we were going over their edge of, they'd never been in the swamp. And, you know, we were hitting at that edge. Um, and then I, I cut some cattails and I started, we started doing sword fights, you know, which was fun. So we were doing these sword fights. And it changed the whole scene. Like we started playing in the swamp, and you know, we forgot about the ball, we forgot about worrying about how we were going to look when we got home. And then my niece discovered something, and it was so interesting. She discovered, I never, I didn't know this, you can take a cattail and like pop it, and so you can have this whole long piece of cattail. She popped it, and it was like snow, like the wind was out, and it just like this huge cloud of snow 
And then, the, you know, it was just, it went from this horribly depressing, miserable afternoon with the kids <laughs> to joyful interest. And we were popping them, and we went out in the street, and these cars were coming by, and there were just huge clouds of seeds, and it was delightful. So a Nietzsche can go in different ways. That's a soft interpretation, yeah? So we can never second-guess reality. We can never second-guess experience. It's kind of, we can get sick, and you can kind of go, "Mm," and then, lo and behold, it's like, that surrender is totally okay. I want to give you one more example of a hard interpretation. Most of you know of the tsunami that happened. And, um, <clears throat> and Steve Smith was just about there to this place, the Golden Buddha Resort, where he was about to start teaching. And one of his friends who um, he's been teaching, he's, she's been teaching yoga, and he's been teaching meditation, was already there. So it was within hours that he was about to get there. So he wasn't quite there. And then um, <clears throat> that earthquake happened. So I, I have several stories about this, but this one is quite amazing in that this woman, Sarah, um, had never seen a tsunami or heard of them. And I, having lived in Hawaii for 23 years, you know, you, living there, every month there's a whole a warning system that we go through, and it's, it's a huge reality in Hawaii, tsunamis, in terms of um, it has happened there, and there's a very good warning system there, so it's quite okay, but you're aware of it living there. But she's from Ireland. She never had heard about them. And so when the water started to recede, she went toward it. And she went right up to the edge of the water. And some man came running by and he said, run. He was nuts, like wild. And she just ran. She, you know, and he was behind her. And she was running and running and running and running. And he went up a tree that had branches so that he could get up the tree quickly. But she tried to get up a palm tree. And so she, didn't, she couldn't move up the tree as fast. And that 500-mile-per-hour wave hit her, you know. And she, it was, it's, she, it was, it's an incredible story because she then, after that, she came to Burma and it ordained as a nun and sat the retreat. Um, and it was sort of a gradual kind of, for me as a teacher, kind of hearing about it bit by bit as she was sort of thawing out from the shock. Um, and what I wanted to share with you, because it's, it's about this place of letting go of control. It was like, <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, just kind of try to imagine being hit by a 500-mile-per-hour wave. I mean, we can, she and I can laugh about it now because it's, it's like it, you really get a sense of being out of control. So there's that sense of a Nietzsche in a way that's so, so dramatic. And that's kind of like how my birth was. You know, it's like there's a way in which it's sort of something like that just pops you out of feeling like you can do something about something. And there's a beauty in it. And that's like she described like how I felt hydroplaning. There's a way in which you just have to. You just totally let go. And she was just like there were things hitting her, you know, like there were things in the water, like a, a roof, <laughs> a 
some roof came by and, you know, something else came by. And she was just about to totally go. And then some part of her thought, well, maybe I should try. And this poem came through her mind from when she was a little girl in Ireland. And there was a line in it that came through it to her, with her. And, it, and the line is, um, hold on to life, even if it's a very small clod of earth. And that line came to her. And even though she was in that really perfection and completeness of peace, she thought, well, okay, I'll hold on to life. And she, she like, managed to get up this tree. Life is just so mysterious, you know, it's like so amazing, you know, and it, it's so precious. You know, we, we have the, we take birth in this body and we're here, you know, we're here somehow. We got ourselves here. And then, you know, our, our, our spiritual instruction, our spiritual instruction is to really you know, make use of this life and to really learn and to, you know, as much as we can, it's like soften, relax, you know, anchor when you need to, but then explore. Let yourself be willing to risk some uncertainty and uncomfortability. And then when you can't tolerate it, you go back and anchor and you rest and then stretch a bit, explore. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the beauty of having the privilege of being in this uh, heaven realm here. You know, this, this place is just so protected. And anybody who's sitting in this room is incredibly fortunate. So I'd like to end with a quotation from Rumi. It's called Pay Homage. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would, be, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. I think I'll say that again. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.